0: Going to be looking at humility is a superpower. So, um, we're going to be looking at cultivating culturally sensitive practices for mental health care providers. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you today. A little bit of information about me. I, uh, my name is Pineese Joshua, and I am a cultural anthropologist. I study with Indigenous el- elders documenting um, spiritual belief systems, worldviews, rituals related to sacred places and nature and how these uh, belief systems impact uh, uh, the sustainability of their communities and, and in particular um, wellness and mental health. Um, I am a mental health advocate. I am a consumer. I, For the last couple of years, I've been um, a, an educator and training um, peer, uh, I'm sorry, peer support specialist um, in LA County. And I think that's, uh, I've been teaching at at the the college level for about 10 years and and it's just great to be here today. So let's get started. Um, Again, I just want to say welcome and thank you for your service. As a matter of fact, give yourselves a hand. All right. You guys do awesome service. Um, I know what it's like out there. And and I just want to say thank you again for your service. Um, So today, um, we're going to be looking at cultural humility. So there might be different levels of where you are with understanding what cultural humility is. Um, You know, if you've had any previous training some of you might be anywhere on this this um, scale um, from yes to yikes what a bore but i need the credits right <laughs> so um, we just wanted to say that you know today it's it's a very low impact you know informal dialogue about cultural humility at the end of the presentation there will be some access to resources and some books and um I think that's it. I should also let you know that there's a little bit of brain fog going on with me today. So (laughs) hope we can walk through this together. All right, let's get started. Um, Our overview today, I have it set up in three modules. So the first module will be looking at cultural competence and cultural humility, do a quick review of of the timeline of the research. Define find some concepts about culture, worldview and identity. We'll be looking at the three primary domains of cultural humility and then we'll do a recap. In module two, we'll dive a little deeper and look at this concept of confident humility. Um, we'll be looking at um, wise confidence and how humility is truly a superpower Uh, And then we'll move into Mod 3 and and look at um, a couple of models of um, actually implementing or cultivating culturally um, sensitive practices. Uh, We'll be looking at the ASSESS model and a little bit of trauma-informed care and then we'll have a recap. Uh, There are a couple of videos embedded throughout. Um, Just feel free, again, this is informal, feel free to walk around, do what you need to do. All right? (laughs) So um, in terms of of cultural competence and cultural humility in um, public mental health care, um, about 30 years ago cultural competency was introduced by social workers and uh, counseling psychologists. Terry Cross was really at the forefront of this in the 1980s um, and I'm sure you've all heard this term, but cultural competency is, um, the goal is to learn about other, uh, cultures, you know, sort of as a continuum of proficiency, looking at attitude, skills, and knowledge. And this was put into place to really better understand other cultures. Um, it became ubiquitous in healthcare services, um, there were some drawbacks um, or some challenges with cultural competence. One of the main one is that um, there is no real focus on the understanding of the practitioner's own values, beliefs, and biases. You know, it's one thing to really look at culture from um, an ethic uh, perspective, from an, an outside perspective. But um, in around 1998, these kinds of inequalities were addressed um, and cultural humility was uh, introduced. That was about 20 years ago. Melanie Turbolon and Jan Murray Garcia. These two, one is a public health physician and the other one is um, a clinic administrator. They really uh, introduced the concept of cultural humility to address some of the inequalities in the healthcare field. By 2019, their work was cited in nearly 2,000 peer-reviewed articles. Um, And the core of cultural humility is is looking at um, an ongoing Attitude towards our clients and ourselves as practitioners. So, lifelong learning and self critique is one of the main components um, to fix power imbalances and um, institutional accountability. Um, And so, about 10, and this became uh, an extension of of what's been done with cultural competency. Um, About 10 years ago, Uh, the idea of cultural humility truly became embedded in um, mental health standards. It is considered the heart, if you will, of cultural competence. Um, A lot of the the research is based on relational cultural theories, which that theory sort of links back to the 80s, but um, is still being used, um, which really focuses on how how powerful culture is and how much it impacts the practitioner-client relationship. It also focuses on the idea that the practitioner um, is an expert, but is also a continuous learning of the client's experience. Um, and so that's where we are with, with a kind of a timeline. The um, outcomes are have been shown to be very much... Um, Positive in terms of uh, culturally sensitive care when it's introduced into um, our work, and for providers, there's a shift in behavior, beliefs, and cognitions, and also this idea of knowing, um, you know, the individuality in a culture versus trying to become proficient at knowing a culture. Um, This is a compilation of meta research done uh, 2014, also up into 2019. Um, The benefits for the clients is that they experience much more trust and satisfaction, their health behaviors improve, the the way they utilize health services improve, um, and uh, their mental care improves. And finally, organizationally, um, the idea of of implementing structural changes, having um, more competent clinic-based interventions, all of this is shown to to have improvements. Uh, So let's, let's get with it. Let's jump into cultural competency and cultural humility. But before we do that, I need to onboard a little bit. Let's uh, let's talk about culture. So, what is culture? Culture is is everything that we see. It's the way we speak. It's the way we dress. It's our rules and our customs. These are all values. Culture is a set of values that are learned from members of that culture, and these values are passed on generationally. And so, um, we learn how to act and how to view the world around us. And we learn what is assumed to be normal. Um, And culture is very complex and multi-tiered. We also constantly move between different types of culture. You know, the way we act um, in a Zoom meeting here today might be different than how how we're gonna act um, in another social setting or our home life or, you know, in a spiritual setting. So culture is very fluid. Um, and uh, the lovely iceberg. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this iceberg used in some type of manifestation. But this is an um, adaptation of what we call a culture iceberg. And it really breaks down the, the way that culture operates. Um, and so at the very tip of the iceberg is what we call the visible culture. Again, the food we eat. We eat when we eat that food. What type of food we, we eat? The art, the language, the traditions—all of these um, integrated patterns of learned human behavior. This is what we. Ha- this is how we operate out in the world. Culture is very much symbolic and constructed, and it's um, all-encompassing. Um, you know, when we say constructed, it's like why is why was the color pink? for many, many years, you know, designates female, and blue would designate male, right? These ideas, these meanings are constructed. Um, They've actually switched over time because culture changes over time, Um, you know. It, culture is symbolic. The idea of doing a thumbs up symbol in one culture, in our culture, means what? A okay, right? A thumbs up symbol in another culture could be a, a derogatory um, uh, communication. So um, things are symbolic. You have to be part. You have to be learned. You have to be taught these things within a culture, and all of this is leading into the, the fact that everything we do is bound by culture including our mental health practices, which are culturally determined. So at the top, there's this visible culture, right under the surface in the iceberg is what we call the invisible culture. This is where the the beliefs, the values, and the worldviews of those members of the culture reside. This is the most powerful part of culture because it's these deep held and deep seated beliefs that really drive and and motivate what we see in the visible culture. And then at the the widest part of the iceberg is what we refer to as, common humanity. This is the part where, you know, <laughs> we all laugh, we all cry, we all seek dignity and meaning in our lives. And um, and this is really where cultural humility, our practices come into play at the lower levels that then shift how we operate in the visible culture. Um, um, therapy has evolved just like culture, because when there are cultural changes that happen, that definitely impacts how uh, we operate as practitioners. All right, so um, culture, worldview, and identity. We've talked a little bit about culture and we've used the term worldview and just to give it like a definition, it is the cultural and psychological beliefs that are held by members of a society. I, I like to say it's the lens or the framework, You know, it's how you view the world. And these shift, evolve and change over time, just like culture identity is of course all the qualities and beliefs and and the personality it could be the external looks everything that an individual and or the collective feels about themselves um, identity is very fluid um, and so a big core of, of talking about cultural humility is to really understand how do you identify yourself what are your worldviews? views is something that we often don't think about but um, it's, it's a good thing to, that self-reflection is very important. Um, culture, identity, and worldviews, they all tie into this concept of intersectionality. All identities, and, um, and very importantly, all inequalities are interconnected. Um, and so our biases and our worldviews, they overlap this intersectionality. Uh, we can look at culture as sort of a scaffolding upon which um, the fabric of our identity and the fabric of our mental health lay. Um, That's um, David Brown from Headcase, um, LGBTQ writers. It was a wonderful book. Um, I I put it at the end of the presentation. You might wanna check it out. It's called Headcase. Um, That's how he described culture and this idea of intersectionality. And so it's, um, it's important to remember that um, we look at the individual in that culture. All right, let's move on to cultural competency. Um, so cultural competency is, is um, attitude, skills, and knowledge. It's this way, This, as I said before, it's a type of continuum that looks for competencies to deal with other cultures. And so, you know, the attitudes of, of having openness and curiosity, the skills of empathy, verbal, nonverbal communication, and this knowledge. And, uh, cultural competency has um, been used in in a transdisciplinary way. Um, in um, the LA County Department of Mental Health, the culturally competent services that are rendered are um, explained on, on this uh, schema. Um, And so I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but I just wanted to point out that humility is a a component of cultural competency, a very important component that we'll be looking at in a moment. So in general, cultural competence is a set of cognitive, affective, and behavioral skills that allow us to interact with a variety of, in a variety of cultural contexts. Um, And um, there are limitations, as I said earlier, it is difficult, if not impossible, to gain a sufficient knowledge of every culture that we encounter. At times, it can also be harmful. Um, Becoming proficient in cultural competence only, you know, in a very narrow way can sometimes lead to stereotyping. Um, And so that is why cultural humility was developed to bridge that gap. So let's talk about humility. You know, a lot of people when they hear the word humility or they say you need to be humble, uh, they think of low self-confidence and that is not the case at all. So humility is freedom from pride and arrogance. It's a term that's misunderstood, very interesting. Um, one of the Latin roots of the word humility means from the earth which is really about being grounded. So being humble is being grounded. Um, It's recognizing that we are flawed and fallible, that we have expertise, but we can always still learn. Uh, And um, a definition out of one of the the research papers is that cultural cultural humility is about openness, self-awareness and egolessness self-reflection, mutual empowerment and lifelong learning. Um, We're gonna be getting into deeper unpacking of all of that in a moment. But I just wanted to mention that cultural humility promotes um, a very humble other oriented type of care. Um, It's about self-reflection. It's about having cognitive flexibility, this ability to adjust and switch our attention. Um, to to know that there might be other ways of approaching working with a client that we may not be aware of. Um, It really is all about being aware of our own values and beliefs. It's very difficult to understand someone else when we aren't aware of ourselves. All right, so back to the iceberg. Um, You know, Cultural uh, cultural humility really, really encourages us to get a much tighter filter on our own biases, norms, and beliefs to better serve the client. It is at that level of beliefs, values, and worldviews that really um, correlates with practicing cultural humility. Um, Just looking at the culture at the, the top you know, part of the iceberg, really, it does, it serves a purpose, but it's, it's at that deeper level of beliefs and values, where we can do our best work. Um, so I'm gonna, the National Association of Social Workers says that so, uh, cultural humility refers to the attitude and practice of working with clients at the micro, meso, and macro levels, with the presence of humility while learning, communicating, offering help, and making decisions in professional practice and settings." So um, just to kind of compare the two, um, cultural competence focuses on achieving a state of knowledge. It sort of looked like you you can become proficient at this this endpoint. Cultural humility is is saying there is no endpoint; that it's it's um, an ongoing process of achieving self-humility in order to be more other-oriented. Um, and I just want to say that you know there really isn't. It, it we shouldn't look at cultural competence versus cultural humility. It's not sort of an either-or option. And a lot of a lot of uh, papers have been written about this in the last couple of years. But we can look at it as um, an either and. Um, so let's jump in to the three domains of cultural humility as it relates to healthcare. So the first domain is lifelong commitment to learning and critical self reflection. The second domain is desire to fix pow- power imbalances within provider client dynamic. And the third domain is institutional accountability and mutual respectful partnership based on trust. So let's uh, get into the first domain. This idea of lifelong learning, it's just that. It's lifelong um, reflection. When we reflect, a lot of things come up. In particular, especially in a professional setting, our biases might come up that we, are, we may or may not be aware of. And that's something that we, all, we need to look at. Lifelong learning and reflection, again, there's no endpoint to it. This is a journey, not a destination. It's about defining your own values, being aware of your biases, um, looking at what you consider to be norms in your life, reflection has been called mindfulness. Is reflection is just really about in the moment, being in the moment and and reflecting on what is transpiring, not judging it, not judging yourself or the person, but just being in the moment and and aware. Um, So cultural humility is a consistent re self appraisal. You will be checking in with yourself Forever, all right? Um, When we talk about bias, a quick little bias basics overview. Um, Bias is when you're um, just sort of slanted for or against something. Bias can be positive, right? Um, But it can also have some detrimental impact. Prejudice is prejudging. Stereotype is generalizations and discrimination can be looked at as Um, action or unfair practices, legal and otherwise, that are taken um, based on the above three. Um, And so when we look at bias, uh, you know, as human beings, our brains make assumptions. It's it's what we do. We're we're wired that way without us even knowing it. Um, Just a a personal example, um, you know, of implicit, which is an unconscious preference for or against. You know, I am... I consider myself one of the most open and loving and and, um, expansive people on the planet, right? But I had to come to terms with this bias that I had with body piercing and what I considered really horrendous tattooing, and it was on females. And so, you know, if I'd be working with someone and it was a female and there was like tattoos that I thought were, were ugly, and I'm just being honest, Um, you know, there was an unconscious bias going on there. I didn't treat them differently, but there was something that clicked in my little lizard brain that said, oh, that's rough trade, right? Or (laughs) she's wild. Um, And I didn't feel that way if it it was a man who was tatted up. And so this was such an interesting process for me to unfold and, and look at and come to terms with. And and not beat myself up about, you know, I it was it, that was just a part of the way I was raised, and so that was it's just really interesting when you we think that we may not be um, performing microaggressions, and and we are um, uh, subtle racism, microaggressions, you know. Another example, I, I was in I was teaching a class once and. Uh, for peer support specialists and one of the ladies said, wow, you know, your hair is so thick, how do you wash it? You know, and it's, it's absolutely fine to ask that. It was, a, it was a valid question, but it was the way the question was posed, you know, um, that could have been viewed as a microaggression. I didn't view it that way, but these are just some examples. Explicit bias, of course, is just overt prejudice. Um, and so these are some of the things that we we want to be aware of when we we're still in domain one talking about critical self-reflection and we really want to be aware that a lot of research shows that um, you know the therapeutic relationships and patient outcomes can be impacted by um, uh, biases and so we always want to acknowledge step outside of our own um, health beliefs um, There's a lot of documentation, as I said, about how bias impacts care. And some studies done between 2012 and 2016. uh, Just a couple of things. The the interpretation of clinical presentation is impacted um, by bias, differential treatment recommendations, and the fact that providers might speak faster, speak more, spend less time with clients of color. So, um, even when we're not aware of it, um, we are impacting health outcomes in our relationships with our our clients. Um, And so, just as a quick recap for the first domain, um, we're not gonna be able, we don't have time to actually break out in groups or do any of this sort of um, interacting on these recaps, but um, just kind of give this some thought. Think of a time when you were not as effective as you wanted to be when someone needed your help and maybe what norms or values or biases kept you from connecting, you know, and what might have you learned from that experience. All right, let's move on to uh, the second domain, which is about fixing power imbalances. Um, And so this idea of, of power, in the, and when we talk about power imbalance, right now we're talking about the client practitioner relationship, but this can apply to any uh, relationship, you know, doctor, nurse, um, supervisor, team member, um, it's, it's about how we interact. So on the client side, when we fix these power imbalances, the client is the expert on their life, right? They have an understanding that is outside of the scope of the practitioner. However, the practitioner holds a scientific body of knowledge. The, se- the practitioner is an expert, and traditionally, it would be the practitioner who has the power in that relationship. Right, and what uh, this this fixing this power imbalance really seeks to merge and have mutual respect. For the personal history the preferences the expertise of the client balanced out with the expertise of the practitioner Um, this can be tricky sometimes um, but this is what uh, we're striving for when we talk about power balance another way to look at power balance is to look at it on a, a broader scale when we talk about equality equity and justice in giving um, services and support. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this um, <clears throat> graphic before. Um, I like to say we we want to try to create a radically egalitarian space, right? We want to remove all the boxes, but the main thing is, is we need to remove the fence, the barrier. We need to remove the barrier that everyone, so that everyone can have um, access on the playing field. Um, Practicing cultural humility is much larger than our individual selves. It's important to um, advocate uh, systemically. You know, this doesn't mean um, that. E- and and by advocate, that is each each person's individual way of of advocating. Um. So to recap, in domain two. Think of a time when you stood up for equality in some way. It could be you know, that something happened in the moment or it came up later in a discussion. How did you feel? Were you emotional about it? Were you physical about it? Um, was there any type of physical reaction? Um, working um, and, and you know, shifting that power balance, um, it is a process. The third domain uh, that they've put forth for uh, practicing cultural humility is in institutional accountability. Um, and so this idea of uh, decolonizing mental health, in general, um, you know, it's important to, there are historic realities and legacies of oppression against certain groups of people, <clears throat> and there is mistrust. I mean, we've seen this in a really profound way. With the, the COVID situation in the country, um, so you know there is a lot of mistrust between groups of people in this in this country with um, the the um, public health institutions. There's been research done by uh, Rita Walker in her 2020 book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health, um, and she says that um, blacks represent less than 15% of the population. However, 25% are represented in long-term care. Um, this suggests overrepresentation in mental health facilities, misdiagnosis, under-treatment and lack of resources. And, you know, I just pulled that particular stat. I mean, it could be any group um, of what we would consider to be a marginalized or, or um, not centered folk. Um, but so this is something to remember this institutional accountability. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not just sort of tearing down the system. If you will, it's all about acknowledging it, being aware of it and taking action in whatever way is comfortable for you building community and mutual respect is a big part of, um, you know, taking action. And so allyship, be an advocate, be larger than your individual self, Uh, pay attention to empathy. And we want to center marginalized voices. All right. And so when we talk about uh, this last domain, think about ways that, um, how practicing cultural humility connects to your organization's goals, right? And then how does it connect to your motivation to be more effective and compassionate about the work that you do? So these are some brainstorms for for you to think about. And uh, just kind of comparison here between cultural competence and cultural humility again. Um, When we're looking at at these two ideologies, we wanna make sure that the, the stakeholder it is the uh, mental health practitioner, right? That we are acknowledging different layers of cultural identity, that we're moving away from this sort of finite knowledge of another culture into continuous learning. Um, we'll, we're building upon um, this limited view into the culture that's defined or identity that's defined by the client. We're moving from this power with the counselor to it being shifted to the client and we're moving from um, you know, this idea that our experience and our expertise can sometimes lead to overconfidence, moving toward a more respectful openness of the client's cultural-based understanding of their lives. Again, there is, uh, it is not either or, it is both and when it comes to cultural competence and cultural humility. Cultural humility is rooted in cultural competence, and I like to call it the heart of cultural competence. Okay, so let's move on to ma two. Let's dig a little bit deep, deeper into this idea of confident humility. All right, so what is confident humility? Um, Adam Grant, who is a a therapist and wrote a book called Think Again and and other researchers have talked about this idea of confident humility. It's addressing this tension between um, humility and pride and understanding how we can own our expertise, but still be humble at the same time. It takes a lot of strength to be humble, much more strength to be humble than um, arrogant. So let's look uh, look at this a little bit. Um, When we talk about uh, humility, again, it's freedom from pride and arrogance. And um, in Grant's uh, diagram, he talks, about the concept of intellectual humility, which is knowing what we don't know. So this idea of having an open mindset um, to be cognitively flexible, um, to know that knowledge is power and knowing what we don't know is wisdom. Um, That's sort of how we define humility. When we talk about confident humility, it's all about the faith in our capabilities, but also being open to new tools. This is an acknowledgement that we don't know everything, right? <laughs> um, the sweet spot he calls it, or the goal is to be confident in our abilities while maintaining humility to self-reflect, question ourselves and seek tools. All right. so. Um, confident humility really helps us to look at um, approaching our expertise with more humility and self-reflection. With humility, we have we have doubt. We doubt, you know, some of the, the action that we may take. We have curiosity. We're open to discovery. When we're working from a place of pride, it's all about convictions, our biases, and this, you know, repetitive... Um, validation of our own belief systems. Um, So this idea of finding that balance between expertise and humility is really important. Um, He describes the ego as the outer shell of our lesser selves. And humility moves in to reveal our greater self. And that is why I like to call humility a superpower, this wise, confident humility. Pride and bias blinds us to our weaknesses. Humility is a reflective lens that helps us to see these weaknesses more clearly. And confident humility is a corrective lens to help us overcome this. And this is all leading toward this idea of of transformation, transformative work, transformative learning. This transformation is a deeper sense of ourselves, It is an expansion of worldviews. And it's all while remaining deeply rooted in our humble expertise. It's a superpower. (laughs) So um, mod three, I just wanted to keep moving forward here. We're gonna look at how we implement some of these superpowers, right? Um, Some of these culturally sensitive practices. Um, um, Mancho in 2013 writes about practicing cultural humility is a willingness to suspend what you know or what you think you know, and also to really look at what you learn about your client's culture and being open to what they themselves have determined is their identity or what they may need. So let's look at um, practicing cultural humility. I like to say that um, humility simply creates more oxygen in the room. It just allows us to breathe. Um, Okay, let's see. The ASSESS motto, we'll go through each of these. Um, So asking questions in a humble, safe manner to seek self-awareness, suspend judgment, express kindness and connect compassion support a safe and welcoming environment and to start where the person is let's take each one of these um, asking questions so we want to take time to learn more about our our um, are their, the identities of the people that we work with. We wanna ask about their background and their perceptions. We always wanna make sure that we're asking about how their experiences may impact their challenges. We want to allow the client to identify their own experiences of feeling othered, if at all. Um, and so that takes really humble questionings and, and a, a safe space. The goal is not to learn the history or to become an expert on their culture, but to really tap into that individual's experience of that culture and how that might relate to the work you're doing together. Um, Seeking self-awareness, we've reviewed this quite a bit, but one thing I wanted to mention is to, you know, always kind of check in with yourself about uh, any discomfort level. You know, how do you feel when you encounter a different identity? Why are you feeling that way? Um, You know, what can you do to change those feelings? A tip that I use is to initiate an active plan to confront and manage them consistently. You know, going back to my example of of me having that um, unconscious bias against piercing and tattooing, you know, I I had to work through that. I had to be honest enough and humble enough with myself to say, you know, this is an issue with me. Let me unpack it and move on from there. Um, So keep an open mind. Um, Be curious. If you're curious, people connect with you and we need connection. That is like the core. We need connection to effectively intervene with clients. Um, suspending judgment. You know, we always want to connect with the real person in front of us. Um, counter first impressions. Be open to individuality, right? Just because you've worked with one blank doesn't mean the next blank will be just like them, right? Um, you know, When we suspend judgment, we should try and respond only when we have a real understanding of what the other person is is trying to to communicate. Um, Looking at expressing kindness and compassion, you know, we want to develop and deepen a trustworthy empathy this word empathy and compassion, these two words. So empathy can be looked at as sort of echoing feelings, right, it's empathy can be taught. It's the ability of of, um, actively listening and actively tapping in to another's feelings. Compassion can be looked at a deeper level of that. It's a deeper level of one's suffering. And compassion for me is more like a verb. Compassion is the action of actually looking at one's suffering. And so these two things, empathy and compassion, kindness, these are critical when we're working with with, um, clients. Um, Supporting a safe and welcoming environment, um, that's of course should be determined by the client's perspective. We want our um, environments wherever they may be, in a Zoom meeting or in, in an actual facility, or one-on-one, wherever it might be, you know, try to make it inclusive, non-threatening. Have all, all identities reflected. Um, we want to make sure we use our language, um, multiple languages in our materials. Have um, no power imbalances. Supported processes. Uh, and the research also suggests that you know, color tones, open space, natural lighting, all of this impacts. Um, a more welcoming environment. There is a case study where um, there is a, a simple gesture. Sometimes a simple gesture can make a person feel welcome. Um, uh, a, a therapist was in an ER room and it was very chaotic, and she just instinctively um, offered a cup of tea uh, to a person that she was about to do an intake with, and it just it made the whole situation less stressful. And, you know, this person, she had no idea if the cup of tea was gonna be offensive or not. And she wasn't doing it out of any sort of knowledge of a culture or anything. Um, Just, but sometimes a simple kind gesture can put people at ease. Um, Taking a deep breath is always a good idea. (laughs) Uh, And then, uh, start where the person is, right? Communication can be as unique as a person's cultural perspective. We need to meet them on their own terms, not where we wish they were, um, but this is idea of um, looking at the individual and, and respecting and honoring their place is very important. Um, another model that uh, is discussed in the literature is a trauma-informed care model. And uh, Dr. Smith um, states that trauma-informed care and cultural humility are synonymous concepts. So um, I, I know that you're, you're, all of you are probably familiar with the trauma-informed <laughs> core principles. And when we look, I mean, it's very difficult to provide effective care without paying attention to underlying causes of the trauma being treated. Um, you know, there's historical trauma, generational, all of this can lead to negative expectations and interact with biases. Um, this idea of a culture of safety, empowerment and healing, it's in direct alignment with how how we practice cultural humility. Um, and again, this is not just, uh, you know, the client, um, Um, provider relationship, but how we interact with colleagues, Um, sometimes sensitive conversations around race or trauma or inequities, lots of, I mean, things that might be unsensitive, scary, sometimes even painful for us to talk about as colleagues. You know, they don't um, necessarily have to be uncomfortable and heavy. They can be framed in resilience and joy and humor right? That's the breakthrough. (laughs) So um, use those superpowers, even when you're working with with folks, not just with your clients. Um, All right. So the other uh, motto that was put forth is the humble motto by Dr. Danielson. And this is really just sort of a recap of everything that we've been talking about so far. You know, your assumptions, understand your own background, uh, learning about another person, incorporating knowledge into your work, this idea of this being a journey, a lifelong process, and, um, you know, emphasize respect when negotiating service plans. All right, um, I wanted to, uh, I had this at the end of the presentation, but I just wanted to bring it up really quickly. Uh, when we're, um Practicing cultural humility, there are a lot of wonderful self-assessment tools out there. I included some of these links so you can visit them later if you'd like. But the National Center for Cultural Awareness has some tools. Uh, The Harvard Implicit Bias Project, I don't know if any of you folks have have done this, but this is wonderful. I would suggest that you take a look at it if you haven't. Um, The LEAP Institute, Listen, Empathize, Agree, partner with Dr. Amado. Um, those are some wonderful assessments there. Uh, creating a welcoming, welcoming environment for LGBTQ plus folks. Um, it's a little PDF. But um, there's also a, this self-assessment checklist. I hope this reads okay for you. Um, This is uh, just sort of a sample of what you would do if you're taking a cultural humility self-assessment. And so, you know, there is no answer key. There are no correct right or wrong answers. It's just a frequency of, if you have a frequency of A, which means you do things frequently, um, then that's one level of, of, of operating in a level of humility. Um, If you do occasionally, then that's another level. And if if you have an abundance of C answers, that would be um, a a level where you might wanna take a look at um, um, your service delivery. And the questions are, are they're in sections like any other type of checklist. This one deals with values and attitudes, questions as, I avoid imposing values that may conflict or be inconsistent with those of cultures or ethnic groups other than my own. And it goes on, I think it's for this short one, it's about 15 questions. So uh, that's something um, that is extremely beneficial, these self-assessment tests and tools. And so, in general, the role of the clini- clinician in cultural mental health, you want to be aware of your client's background. You want to always remember that culture plays a role in treatment. Um, be open, accepting, and non judgmental, mindful of your biases, assume nothing, let the client lead, and always remember to teach others what you know and what you don't know and back to um, (laughs) Adam Grant, you know, staying on this journey toward wise, confident humility. It's, uh, you know, what we know is very small when when radiating out to the things that you don't know. And that's all right, because what you know and your expertise is amazing. And that should not impact the ability and to self reflect and understand that there are things that we don't know. And there are ways that we can learn to better operate and serve the operate with and serve the people that we um, work with. All right. Um, so just um, to recap, you know, we always want to be mindful of our judgmental thinking, we want to examine counter transference, let the client lead um, look at Uh, Be aware of the client's actions versus our values, right? And this continuous process of self-reflection. We're going to wind down here. um, But so in conclusion, when we um, stay on this journey of cultivating cultural humility in our practice, um, we always need to keep in mind that it really is at the heart of assertive community treatment, at uh, cultural competency, trauma informed, person centered harm reduction. Everything we do, cultural humility um, can play a role. Um, I wanted to close with a quote from uh, one of the authors that I researched, Farunda, um, and uh, they say, Cultural humility implies one must strive for learning at the highest level of learning, that of transformation. Cultural humility involves a change in overall perspective and way of life. Cultural humility is a way of being. Employing cultural humility means being aware of power imbalances and being humble in every interaction with every individual. This is a lifelong process. All right, I think uh, we're gonna call that a wrap. Thank you all. (laughs) Okay, I think that uh, we do have, uh, as I said at the beginning, there are some sources here. Um, these are some books that I, I recommend if you want to have a little late night reading. Um, I don't know if you folks are familiar with Dr. Rosenberg, but Bedlam is just, um, my heart. (laughs) Uh, and Head Case, this is, this has just been published. This is the LGBTQ on mental health and wellness. Native American psychology. Um, I do a lot of work with sweat lodges and and Native American healing modalities um, for people in in, uh, recovery and mental health. Um, clients. So, oh, and then the Unapologetic Guide to Mental Health. These are just a few that um, I wanted to put up. And this is another little video source. Uh, These, um, this is a a short film that was created by Vivian Chavez and it's um, Melanie uh, Turvalon and Jan Murray Garcia. They are talking about cultural humility. It's just a three minute clip of a, a longer, um, um, short film that was made about cultural humility. So that might be of interest at some point. And uh, finally, humility is a superpower. So we'll open it up to Q&A now. Thank you. (laughs) If you have recommendations on how to approach engagement and building rapport when it's difficult. Right. Great question. I mean, and, you know, sometimes we're circumscribed on what we can do based on uh, the what is you know expected of the team right um, but one key would be this idea of to listen empathize agree and partner this idea of leap when you listen empathize agree and partner it's it's it really comes down the research shows that you know it's like dealing with people who have smis and are not maybe Um, acknowledging it or not ready for treatment or whatever the case may be. Um, You know, using a two by four isn't gonna help, but this gentle nudging and gentle acknowledgement. And that really means stepping into their worldviews, to listen and to empathize, agree with what they're feeling and then partner. The the key is, is to build a collaboration with a client of trust and empathy so that they, so that you can be able to help them take that next step, and that next step may not come in the time frame that you think it's necessary or or should happen. Does that make sense? It's a very, it's difficult. Your question is difficult to put into place, but basically everything we've spoken about, this idea of of asking questions and and engaging and looking at. Um, you know, maybe doing a self-evaluation of, of why it's so important to you to have this client take a step that your, your supervisor or whomever your colleague feels that this person isn't ready. You know, there's a, there are a lot of things happening. But on the most basic level, it's about creating trust with a client. When the client trusts you, they are more open to types of services that you have to offer them that can take time. Here's my email. It's it's on the screen now. Feel free to to reach out and and be in touch with me at any time. So it's pineesejoshua at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, guys. Enjoy your day.